We met 20 years ago. Do you remember that, Mullins? I'd like a soda with lemon, thank you. You played the grieving husband. I was a young FBI agent. Do you remember these women? I don't know them. Of course you do. You wouldn't have forgotten them yet. So tell me, where is your son, Mullins? Where is he taking your next victim? To a friend's place, to an abandoned house? I rewired this house. Did he help you with that? Or did you do that on your own? Like you did all of these. Those are trophies. What do you know about trophies? I like trophies. Proves you won something. Well, you're not going to win today. I'm scared. You don't have a right to be scared. Those women were scared. Now, where's your son? Listeners, this is Lisa Zambetti. This is Killer Casting, where we talk about all kinds of great casting, great movies, great TV shows that we want to turn you on to. And I'm here with my sexy beasts. Ryan here. Hello. Good day. Good to be back. And good day from uh, Dean here in Melbourne from Down Under. So, boys, we're going to be resuming our talk with the OG, wonderful actor, Joe Montaigne. Hey, what did you think of our first episode with him? Any thoughts? Come to my. If you'd have told me that I was going to be talking to Joe Montaigne and the subject of Godfather 3 and Joey Zaza <laughs> doesn't even come up, I would have said you are insane because, as you both well know, I hold the antithetical view that Godfather 3 is a killer killer film and i'm very interested to see that francis at the moment he's just recut godfather 3 and i'm very interested to see it because i loved even the original and of course really oh yes i did i loved it and we'll pick this up in a future episode but i loved the casting of sophia coppola (laughs) in particular anyway we didn't get to that and my mind's still freaking out on the fact we spoke to john montagna and i didn't get to talk about joey zaza i'll get over it and i would say talk about an actor's actor It's just about salt of the earth. These are the things that come to mind and just the ease with which he talks about the work. And it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And it's not about him. It's about the work and it's about the the people that, that were a part of that that project. And you can see the energy that he still has for us. It, it, it's just so great. So yeah. great. So now we're going to go pivot to Darker Waters. And, you know, as a theater person, Mamet is a very interesting person when you're a theater actor because so many people want to do scenes from American Buffalo, fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie. And I, I've seen American Buffalo and I was stunned by it I, live. And I've seen Oleana on stage and I've seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross on stage. But he's a tricky dick, this Mamet. He's interesting, he's controversial, and watching his films, for me, was a little problematic. I have to say that I watched Homicide and uh, House of Games, which we'll get to, and I liked House of Games much more, but let's talk about Homicide. So, and it was not what I thought it was going to be. When I heard the word Homicide, I thought, oh, you're going to solve a homicide. <laughs> it's going to be a buddy picture, and you play a Chicago detective. Well, wait, wait, that's, that's interesting. Sorry. 
That's interesting okay. because the, it's not Chicago. You look at the yeah. emblems on the police cars and it's different. It's a different seal. You know but what this I mean? is, so once it's again, like, it's written and directed. So this is d- written oh, yeah. by David Mamet and directed by David Mamet. This is, uh, the, but this is the thing that's funny. So I've gotten to be good friends with David Pasquese, who's Chicago improv guy. He played Roma at Steppenwolf. Actually, when they did Glengarry, Nussbaum playing Levine. And one thing that we've talked about Mamet a, a bunch, and it's Mamet has spent more time out of Chicago now than he spent in Chicago or Illinois. So, I mean, like the ethos of Chicago is absolutely in the film. It is apart from... Chicago, for sure. You start the film, you think it's going to be a cop buddy movie yeah. with Joe. Yeah, Joe's definitely. playing a cop and then Bill Macy's playing your partner and they're all these great other character actors playing cops and detectives and captains. And, and you think it's going to be about you so- helping to bring a cop killer and a drug dealer to justice. And then it takes a sharp right turn where you're dragged into this case to solve the murder of an elderly Jewish lady and you just go down a rabbit hole from there. Do you want to talk about that, Joe? Yeah, it was, it was the third film I made for Mamet at that time. So there had been an evolution from House of Games that things changed and now this was homicide. When I read the script, I felt in many ways it reflected an evolution that David was making in himself. Because I know him for, I I just saw him a week ago. We're still very close. I've known him for now over close to 50 years. I think he was going through a personal kind of discovery of himself personally. And I think even in terms of his Jewishness, let's say. And I've seen that happen to other friends of mine. My friend Stuart Gordon, a great director who recently passed away, who did those movies like Reanimator and all those great was a well-known horror film director. But I remember how it was such a big deal for him when he finally had his bar mitzvah, but he was like in his 50s or something. And I can relate to that. I understand that. I grew up a Roman Catholic, but I've been a bad one all my life. But I I start to see how sometimes you start to rediscover things about yourself that you go back to your childhood and say, you know what? I negated all this stuff, especially if you grew up through the 60s where everything was like, no, peace, love, rock and roll, baby. I don't need to worry about that stuff. You start to maybe examine it a little more and revert to it. So I think David, in a way, you know, again, he would have to answer that. And he might say, no, nah, Joe's full of shit. That's not, that's not, that, none of that. He probably would. But I, I could help but think that he was trying to say with it something almost like a, um, not a mea culpa, but a, in a way about expressing a part of him that he hadn't maybe had, had held in himself, but now wanted to express it and doing it through this movie and through this character. And what's funny is I wasn't supposed to play that character up until maybe two months before we started the film. I was supposed to play the part. Art Macy played, and Dustin Hoffman was cast as the role that I played. Wow. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, and what had happened is, the, I don't know the whole story there, but whatever happened, I got a phone call from Dave literally like six weeks before we started saying, hey, Joe, Montaigne, when he's, he's, he, he, he talks like he writes, it's a very short sentence. Hey, Montaigne, what do you think about playing the Bobby Gold instead of the other guy? Well, okay, Dave, whatever. And then he moved Macy up for whatever role he was going to do up into the part I was going to part. Can we just say in that role, and I just saw it the other day again, it was, this is 1991, Bill's mustache. Did he just know that Ned Flanders was coming? <laughs> <laughs> it could is, be. Go back and look at it. It's just freaky. He could play yeah. the real life version of Ned Flanders. And of course, yeah. he's got the Bill Macy vibe to go with it. That's that right. Hilarious. Yeah. And, uh, and since I play Fat Tony, that would all work out pretty well. <laughs> As a casting director, I like that adjustment because as much as, of course, we love Dustin Hoffman, you two look so much alike in some ways. You have a similar vibe that I like the contrast between you and Bill. Just visually, that's a big thing for me. But I don't 
buy Bill as a cop in this. I, I for me personally, and Mr. Right. Macy, I hope to work with you someday, Bill, if you're listening. But for me, you just have an effortless cop vibe about you. And for me, it was pushed. But I think, Joe, don't you think that this is part of Mamet's style? This film came out around the same time as Goodfellas and around the same time as Godfather 3. But Homicide feels very dated when you watch it now. The style is strange. It, the dialogue is very self-conscious. I'm mm-hmm. saying this line. I'm saying this line. I'm saying this line. I'm saying this line. And that's a very mammoth thing. And to me, it doesn't feel authentic to the streets. It doesn't feel authentic to cop talk, if you know what I mean. It feels very theatrical. I do, and I get that too, that there are people, some of the roles were, were basically people that were not necessarily actors. There were just people that were in that circle of friends and people that we all knew and that David knew. And, and that's why I think that there was a lot of personal thing involved in the, the, mm-hmm. the making of that film. Mm-hmm. I mean, this one character of the son of the woman who was killed, that guy was a judge from Chicago. He was like a, a mm-hmm. very important judge. He was like on the circuit court there. Great guy. But I, I don't think he'd ever acted a lick in his life. And I understand that when you're directing, you want, sometimes you won't just, there's something to be said about surrounding yourself with people who make you feel comfortable yes. and give you this feeling of, they get me. I'm not going to have to worry about that aspect of it. Sometimes, and that's fine, especially when I learned that as a director myself, when you put yourself in that position, there are sometimes you make some allowances over one thing for a certain reason. And you just, as long as you can justify it to yourself, that's all you can do. On that topic of dialogue, uh, re-watching this film, at times I was reminded of, and Lisa, you just mentioned it too, about the dialogue, ping-ponging backwards and forwards. And it was almost, uh, I made a note that it was almost like, it was like an Aaron Sorkin thing. It was like a West Wing or something where people are walking and uh, not so much walking in this one, but certainly going backwards and forwards. Do you see a correlation between... Mamet and Sorkin? Yeah, no. I- Writers are all influenced by each other, just like actors are influenced by each other and every, mm-hmm. everybody else is influenced by each other. I think certain writers tend to fall in a certain kind of a way of doing things and other writers fall in another certain kind of way. So I'll probably say that they were, those two guys are more exist on that side of the street. And they're both playwrights. Sorkin, they were, was, Sorkin was yeah. a playwright, yeah. Yeah, but even there are some playwrights that are just can go a whole other. I remember when I was working with Woody Allen, I did two pictures for Woody Allen. And because I'd done so much with Mammoth prior to when I was working for Woody Allen, I, I was such a stickler on the dialogue. In other words, I wouldn't change a, a can't to a not because mm-hmm. I figure Dave writes in iambic pentameter. You can't be just changing the, the rhythm of a line. So I remember I would say, do you mind if I say I, I, I don't instead of I don't want to or I don't want to or something? And he'd say, oh, say anything you want. I, I, I don't care. <laughs> and it was like, and then I realized, oh, yeah, okay, so he's a little different. Like, in other words, he didn't care if you kind of riffed and went everywhere you wanted with it. But then if he didn't like it, he'd say, oh, go back to the, to the thing. You know what I mean? But he would give you the freedom to just go off and ad lib even if you, if you wanted to somewhat, you know what I mean? And that's when you make that realization, each writer has its own style and his own kind of way of doing business and way you, you got to well, understand what that is and adapt to it. And I think more, and Dean, and this is just my opinion, to me, there's more of a connection between Pinter and Mamet just in terms of their style, in terms yeah. of elevating a kind of common man, a kind of common language. There's a rhythm to it. And I think that if you watch a movie like Heist, I mean, they're all speaking in one-liners. Like everything is a call and response kind of one-liner that's funnier than the next. And then Glengarry Glen Ross, who's that? Or cop can't find his dick, two hands in a map. You know what I mean? It's those yeah. kinds of things that become that become poetic in a way. You know? you know, it's funny you brought up Pinter because, and I'll tell you this little anecdote. 
because I think it's really very telling. They knew each other early on, I'm talking at least in terms of the early 80s. And I remember David telling me about the, the evolution of the plague when Gary Glenn Ross, they were doing readings of it. And whatever, he just, the feedback he was getting was that wasn't quite, this one wasn't right, or this wasn't right, and that the ending wasn't right, and the last, the second act wasn't right. So he sent it to Pinter. And he said, would you just give me your opinion as to maybe what you think about this? David got a phone call a few weeks later from the National Theater in London. And the National Theater basically said to him, you know, we'd like to do your play of Glengarry Glen Ross. He said, how did you get the play? They said, Harold Pinter sent it to us. And he said, all this play needs is a production. And that's wow. basically why, how, why that happened and why it opened in London just prior wow. to the week. They did the world premiere. I did the premiere of it on Broadway. So your point, Brian, is, is correct in, in a way in that there was a very closeness the two of them especially. Sorry, so for our listeners who aren't as inside baseball with all this as we are, so Harold Pinter is a playwright and also a, a screenwriter. And just for our listeners to know, when you read a Pinter play, you must pay attention to the punctuation. If you change the punctuation, the meaning of the play right. changes. If there's a pause, you take that pause. If there's a comma, if there's an ellipse, it's very ellipses, it, yes. ellipses. Thank you. It's very important. And so those of us who are theater geeks, we take we carry that over <laughs> into all the other scripts that we that we work on. And Brian, I know you're jumping at the bit to come in, but just a second. But Joe, when you study acting, and if you read any of Mamet's books on acting, or if you study at the Atlantic Theater, much is made of don't fucking create a character. You don't have to create a character. I made the character. It's on the page. Say my words and there's your character. But in some ways, I think when you see that on film, because Glengarry Glen Ross, the film was directed not by Mamet, by somebody else. And I love that fucking film. But when you see Homicide, I can hear Mamet saying, just say my fucking words. Don't have a character. <laughs> just say it. That's all you need to do. And for me, it puts a distance for me. I get it. You know? and that, that goes back to what I said about the casting, though, in the sense that yeah. I think that it's important, too, because I think sometimes if you get the, the person that just can, can get that, who gets it, fits that particular character, they're natural. Yeah. That's why, David, you would always gravitate toward guys like Jack Wallace and J.J. Yeah. Johnson, who were, you're talking about guys who'd served time in prison, like that, that, that was their education of becoming actors, but they had that natural kind of a thing that you put those words in their mouth, that world that, that he was trying to capture, and they did it very well because that's who they were. And to your point, Lisa, so there's this great scene where you're talking to precinct captain and Linda Kimbrough is playing uniform cop behind you guys. She's got her eyes down the entire time. And I've seen Linda Kimbrough in Chicago. She did The Old Neighborhood at Northlight that Nussbaum directed. Right. And she's she's a power. She's a force of nature. She's an amazing actress and I, one of my favorites in Chicago. And yet it's almost like she's hogtied by the smallness of the scene with eyes down waiting for her time to to speak it's something that i i don't know if that makes any sense it's just something that i observed i was very mindful of that i couldn't take my eyes off the fact that as you two were talking she was in the background seemingly just waiting to like say the line to kind of lisa's point of, of that distance that disconnect in terms of like the acting that is a valid thing but i guess you but you also have to realize you have that special relationship that's going to affect you because you know who that person yeah, is absolutely 9.9 percent of the audience out there they don't know who the hell she is and all yeah. they think of is that the girl back there looking down that's all it's right where is he I used to kill my baby that I brought into the world. White folks. Why would that be? 
The baby's a murderer. He never hurt nobody. Now that's just not the facts. He never hurt no one. Now you got him out there running for his life. We got to find him. Don't do this the hard way. Look at me. Now don't do this the hard way. We can help you. It's a bad beat and you're stuck in it. It's going to be some crying. But our way is the easy way. Listen to me. We need your son. But we don't need him dead. You want him alive? Work with us. We got to bring him in. We want to kill him. We need to take him. But we need him alive. That's the job we were given to do. That's what I gave it to the cops instead of the FBI. Our job is to bring him down alive. Listen to me. I know that it stinks. I know that there's so much death in the world. I know that it's full of hate, Mama. I know that it all turns out wrong. Here we are. Here we are. We're the garbage men. You think I don't know that? I know that. Looking for something to love. You got something to love. You got your boys. That's something. Look in my eyes. I want to save your son. Before God, I want to save your boy. Will you help me? You guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go over and give us a positive six-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Plus, if you know someone who would like the show, please send them a link. Sharing is caring. And now back to the show. This is the thing I wanted to, to just bring up real quick. And this may seg into talking about House of Games and it's this notion of tells. So your character name, Bobby Gold, it's a variation of Bobby Gould's from Speed the Plow, but also Bobby Gould in Hell. Bobby Gould slash Gould as an alter ego of Mammoth, I think, makes a lot of sense that, and especially what we know from some freaks talking about his relationship to his Judaism, growing up in a kind of cultural Jewish environment and trying to figure out as a grown-up, now being a father and a husband, what does it mean to be Jewish? And to play that out in this movie. And the thing that I, and I'd seen the movie when it came out on video, because I was working in a video store. And of course, I was a huge mammoth guy, huge uh, Mantegna guy by virtue of being a mammoth guy. And I had forgotten the ending of the movie, which is he is neither, he is rejected by both cops and by the Jewish community that he found himself a part of. And to understand, it was heartbreaking whether he was revealing this overtly or not, to feel like not a part of either. To me, it's such a revealing movie, even if it's not his best. Joe, you were able to connect to that because for listeners who haven't seen it, you um, start to try to solve the mystery of this lady's, this old lady's killing, and you get caught into this web of, what would you call it? Underground Jewish freedom fighters? Yeah, or, like, or Israel? Yeah, like resistance. Yeah. And they're trying to fight rising Nazism in their community. And you help, you start helping them. When you start, right. you, you plant a bomb that blows up one of the headquarters. And you have an incredible scene where you smash a case of model trains. Do you want to talk about the significance of that scene, Joe? And again, I, could, I can't speak for David, but I guess it is that, it, it's that 
that thing of being able to acknowledge the fact that there is this part of your life that maybe you've subjugated a bit for a long time, and now it's being thrust in your face. And in that particular instance, here's this guy who is a, he is a cop, so he's in a world that he always, that character Bobby Goldie always played down that fact that he was Jewish because in that world that he's going to talk about small talk around the water cooler, you're not going to be talking about your kids' bar mitzvah and stuff like that because most of the guys he's working with are rough and tumble kind of homicide kind of guys. Weren't a lot of, that wasn't a, a part of what their thing. So here he was thrust into this thing where he's in this building and he's looking and he sees that there was that photo of, of, of these people being, obviously this was the headquarters of a, of a guy who was running a hobby shop, but, but he's underground. He's like a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. There's this picture of, of dead bodies laying in a ditch, obviously killed by Nazis. And there's the swastika and the flag and this and that. And, this. and then here is this beautiful train set, which is the cover in a way for what this guy's life is. I think it was just that. It, it was like breaking the cover of who that guy is by also breaking the cover of who I was. That's why when I walk away, when I plant that and I walk away, and I remember it scared the hell out of me because it was directed and, and rightly so to not look back. <laughs> so in other words, I plant that thing and I leave that building and all I know is just they're going to blow up this building uh, behind me. I was going to say. I can't, I can't acknowledge cow. it. So I can remember as I left that building, all I could think of is I hope these special effects guys know what <laughs> Yeah, that. Because I, you, can't, you can't practice this. And I remember when it went off, all I could feel was heat hitting me. And that's yep. why I started to walk a little bit faster. Yep. I thought I can't see what's going on but I'm seeing reflection of it in the lens of the cameras. And I'm thinking, I see a lot of flame. Maybe I should keep moving. But it worked pretty well. But I think it made its point. And it's also a guy where he's crossed the line. I've now, I've now basically thrown, probably thrown my career away because right. I've crossed that line. And then yeah. comes the tragedy when he realizes just what Brian said. I've done nobody any good. Nobody wins in this situation. Joe, there's an amazing scene in the film where you go on this anti-Semitic rant on the phone back right. to back to the the office and it's wonderfully blocked because we don't see anything until we we're meant to at which point am i right roger deacons shot this yeah mm-hmm. yes he yeah. did and then you step away from the shot and we see in the background the it's the daughter isn't it of the granddaughter yeah granddaughter. the granddaughter and i just the first time i saw that i was just Lord, what was that like as a scene? And what was it like when you read that and went, wow, you must have gone. Yeah, that was pretty, as it turned out, then that's the woman that David married. It was Rebecca mm-hmm. Kitchen who played mm-hmm. that part. Oh, amazing. And, okay. and, and then to, yeah, it's one of those moments where as an actor, you, you get that taste of, wow, this is, you're doing something that even affects, viscerally affects you. Because yeah. I knew what I was saying. And to, then to have that reveal and realize that she's overheard this and basically nails me on it it's you become that character you really become that character for a minute and it really you know again it's not much acting required you hopefully yeah. those emotions take over and you realize it's a disturbing kind of a, a thing but that, that those are the moments you look for to hope for actually when you're an actor because yeah. they affect you yeah, it just really reminded me, actually, that uh, there's a reverse after we see her. There's a reverse on you. I think you've got the you've got the sort of phone to your ear, and then you see her, right. and you just pause, you freeze, and then there's a whole range of emotions that we can see just running through your face. It's acting without words, and right. 
it, uh, it might be, I don't know, four or five seconds or something. You're looking at her that she's looking at you and you've got the guilt, you've got the this, you've all this stuff running across your face. And it reminded me of the very final scene from Miller's Crossing, which is also uh, wordless for Gabriel Byrne when he tells Leo, the character, that we're done, we're finished, we're out of here. And the look on the face of Leo, it goes through about 12 different things all in this one single take. And, and it reminded me of that with you. It was just, right. wow. And before we move on to the, the final film I want to talk to you about, there is another scene, Joe, where you had to say some very terrible words at the very end of Homicide, where you're going after the drug dealer played by Ving Rhames. And to current audiences, that's, I don't know if back in the early 90s, we flinched much about the use of the N-word, but I certainly flinched having to hearing my beautiful Joe Montaigne say that word and watching you go after this criminal and just that whole scene is just like purgatory between the two of you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, again, it was pretty heavy. And, and in a way, you're right. And way you saw the Lenny play a director which kind of again that's an issue there in the sense that Mm -hmm. and that's that thing where Lenny Bruce made that point about how that word in a way the n-word is more of an issue it is today than it was even back then Mm -hmm. in the sense that it's over the controversy I mean I say I saw just recently one of band the the book Huckleberry Finn and all that and stuff like that and I like get it it's reared its head that whole thing of and understandably so of all the events that have obviously happened especially mm-hmm. in the last few years to do that back then that was like 1990 91 when we made that movie yeah it was it, it was disturbing but it was disturbing in the sense of as the whole picture was disturbing that's what I meant it really is a great tragedy that film in the sense of that's why even at the end it's like the rise and fall of Bobby Gould in a way Bobby Gould mm-hmm. starts off this guy he's at the top of his game he's the best kind of guy at what he does he's the mouthpiece he's the guy that can talk he's got that gold and tongue. The next thing, the movie ends with him basically up against that wall and just his world is destroyed. And I think that scene you're talking about, that whole thing of tapping into some of the inner demons that probably he always had being a policeman. I remember when we had to do the the research for that movie, Bill Macy and I, Mm -hmm. we shot it in Baltimore. And the Baltimore Homicide Police came to give us some technical advice. They, they arranged a meeting for us to meet them. And so I remember they brought their murder book with them because their feeling was, oh, you guys want to play homicide? All right, we're going to show you what it's like to be a homicide detective. Right. And I remember they sat down and you could see they were saying, you ready to look at some pictures, boys? We said, yeah, OK. And I remember they, they opened up that book. And by the time they got to the third page, I saw Bill go, I think I got a costume fitting. I got to go. And he blew <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I said I gotta stay I'm not gonna blow up so I'm here I'm cool and they were showing us some of the most horrific kind <sighs> of crimes real crime scene photos yeah. stuff that they had to deal with every day stuff I won't even tell you what the pictures yeah, were but yeah. just a, your imagination is just what the worst thing you can imagine a human being can do to another human being yeah. those were the photos and they're basically making the point this is what we deal with every day and so he says, so don't wonder why some of us become alcoholics and get divorced. And, da, 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 da. and so to me, and I, I mentioned that because in a way it goes back to just what you said, that in a way it's almost not a, it's a justification, but it's somewhat of an explanation of why then you have a moment like that where Bobby Gold, even supposed to be this guy who's somewhat heroic, he's flawed too, and he's going to tap into some yeah. darker parts of himself when pushed and that's why it's a shame well, the last thing i want to say about homicide though is the diversity of the cast in, in spite of this 
horrible last scene where you say the N-word. The diversity of the cast is quite amazing. And Joe knows very well that on Casting Criminal Minds, we CBS is like, you're going to put diversity as much as possible, as well they should. But back then, I'm sure there wasn't the, the push to have such a diverse cast, yet there is every kind of ethnicity on this police force. Your boss is Black. This other guy high up in the government who's kicking your ass is Black. Part of your partners are are black and Hispanic and uh, and that the bad guy is black, but there's tons of diversity all around that reflects mm-hmm. America. I was very happy to see that. That was us. That was our group. So David was true to that. These are all people he knew well and you know liked. And that was that that's one thing I'm very happy about. We we always work with a diverse group and still yeah. are. All right, we're gonna cut it short here with our talk with Joe Montagna. Boys, we cannot wait to get back and do the rest of this interview. I think everybody is going to love what he has to say about his body of work. But for now, this is Killer Casting signing out. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by me, Lisa Zambetti, with audio engineering by Dean Laffin, logo art by the lovely April Laffin, website and big old fat opinions courtesy of Brian Allen Hill.